Well, uh, we're moving on in our, our series on religious liberty. Uh, but before I start, I'm going to... There are quite a few of you here I know will not be on Heartland's mailing list, and you may want to be on the mailing list if you do print your name and address, etc., and uh, pass it on. Don't just write it, print it. And uh, it's only the first page because other things that we won't be talking about now are on the other pages. So if you could just put one on each side and then share it around the, the tent. Just this is to receive the free mailing material that comes out from Heartland Institute. Well, this afternoon I want to take us back to the prophetic words concerning the final persecution that's going to come upon God's people. So if you'll open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 13, we have here a detailed prophetic plan that deals with the issues that are about to take place on our planet and it will bring in the final climactic events of this world's history. Some of you will recall that after the collapse of the Soviet Union that a triumphal President George Bush stood up and said we are the only superpower on this earth. Any of you remember that? Oh, I remember it very well. It probably was recorded over here. But I'm here to tell you this afternoon, brethren and sisters, that President Bush was absolutely dead wrong when he said that America was the only superpower. It is true that the collapse of the Soviet Union had deprived that nation of the challenge of being one of the two superpowers. But nevertheless, the scripture says that there are going to be two superpowers at the end of the world. And Revelation 13 deals with these two superpowers. The first half deals with one of the superpowers and the second half deals with the other superpower. In Revelation 13, we find an animal, a beast coming up out of the sea. The sea representing what? Peoples and multitudes and, and where there is obviously considerable civilization development. And it said he had seven horns, uh, seven heads and, uh, and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, rulership, and upon his head the name of blasphemy. So once again we're dealing with a power that is making certain claims. As you know, there are two aspects to the claims of blasphemy. On the one hand, 
there is a claim to be God or like God. And secondly, there is a claim to forgive sin. So we're dealing with a religio-political power. That is plain. I don't have to tell you that this beast represents the power of the papacy. It's not a common thing to say today. Even amongst our own brethren, it's not popular to identify this beast. It's not considered politically correct. But I want to tell you it's biblically correct. I just go back on all the reformers. We're in good company, brethren and sisters, when we identify this beast as the papacy. Indeed, if you go back at all the different representations of this power, whether you go back to Daniel and the little horn power, whether you go to Thessalonians and see the man of sin, the son of perdition, that wicked, it's still the papacy. If you look at the beast power, if you look at Babylon, if you look at the uh, impure woman, the harlot woman of Revelation 17. If you look at the Antichrist of 1st and 2nd John, all of them, add them together. And if you can't find 50 different characteristics to identify what this power is, you haven't been trying very hard. There are so many clues to whom this power is, and I want to defy anyone to find any other person or power or organization that has ever fulfilled anything like all these, the only one is the papacy. And yet today all sorts of misinformation is being given to, to people even in our church. We don't want to say what it is. You know, when I listened just last weekend to the first time I had to the Kenneth Cox interview down there in Florida, many of you have heard of that. And when he was asked the question about the Antichrist, the, who is the Antichrist? And I tell you, I've never heard a man waffle it away without coming and saying it. And later, some caller in gave him a marvelous opportunity. She said, but haven't Seventh-day Adventists in the past identified the um, Antichrist as the Catholic Church? That was a question. I tell you, that wouldn't have been a difficult one for me to answer. I don't know how you would. He could have answered it so nicely, so carefully. He could have said, yes, that is true. That would be a correct answer, wouldn't it? <laughs> and he could have said, just as did the Lutherans, and the Presbyterians, and the Baptists, and the Reformed churches, and the Evangelicals. And, and then he could have said, the only difference between all them and Seventh-day Adventists is that we still believe that the Antichrist is the papacy. That would have made a little impact, I think, if he'd have said it something like that. Because you know the rest are losing their identification. And brethren, it isn't that we want to beat upon the papacy. After all, God's got his, some of his people in the, the Roman Catholic Church. Do you believe that? Otherwise, he couldn't have said, come out of her. 
my people. But I want to tell you, if you love Roman Catholics, and if you ro- love your fellow men, you're going to call them out, because the call is to come out that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Wouldn't it be dreadful for some Roman Catholics to be partakers of the sins and receive the plagues because you or because someone else that knew myself hadn't warned them, hadn't invited them, hadn't shown them and led them into the full light of the everlasting gospel. And they're going to suffer the plagues, not only the plagues, if they suffer the plagues, they're going to suffer the eternal death. Both go hand in hand together. But I want you to notice the dragon gave, verse 2, end of verse 2, the dragon gave to the beast his power and his seat and great authority. Pretty serious business, isn't it? Who is the dragon? Well, that's not a hard question, is it? You don't have to guess. The Bible tells us in the previous chapter that the dragon is Satan. 12 verse 9. The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan. (coughs) There it is. So his authority doesn't come from God. His authority comes from Satan. Verse 3, of course, talks about the deadly wound. And I'm not going to go into that except to say what a miracle it was that that worked out so perfectly. And that in 1798, the papacy had the deadly wound when Berdier took prisoner Pius VI And slowly he was taken back to France. Now, you say, well, that's only what Seventh-day Adventists say. Only a few weeks ago when Elder Ernest Steed was our main speaker at the Spring Convocation, he asked me if I'd seen this book. So I looked at the book. I'd never seen it at all. An old book, this one that he had, was published in 1838. But its first edition was 1798, a very significant date, and written by an English minister who had been an Anglican minister but had left the established church, and he was explaining why he'd left the the established church of England. But he also wrote it, for the followers and disciples of Thomas Paine, the atheist, and also for the weak Christians. The title went on and on. It was kind of like a a paragraph, the title of the book, (coughs) as they sometimes did in those days. But uh, I said, we've got to get hold of one of these books. Well, I got on to Brother Mayer and in short time he got a copy but it was an 1810 edition 
The one that Elder Steed had was an 1838 edition, and it said the late uh, Reverend whatever his name was. Just slipped my mind. And I said, I want you to look at the footnotes and also the statements, because in the 1838, it goes back to 1798 as a deadly wound. Fascinating. And I found the 1810 edition which did not describe him as the late such and such. So he must have still been alive then. I'd like to get hold of one of the originals, 1798, and see what he said then. But at least 12 years after the deadly wound, he was identifying and saying, therefore, and it wasn't the best arguments, but therefore, the 1260-day prophecy must have begun in 538. We're going to republish that book, you can understand. It's a very important book. You see, the Protestants that were Bible students and they weren't worrying about the ecumenical movement, they weren't trying to shade the past, they were able to discern it because that's what the Bible says. The miracle was, of course, that Pope Pius VI lasted till 1798. As some of you know, and I believe I mentioned it before, but I see quite a number of people that almost certainly weren't here the last time I spoke. In 1797, Pius VI was so desperately ill that they were convinced he was on his deathbed. And Joseph Bonaparte, who was then in charge of the Italian states, those little states that made up the what we now call the nation of Italy, sent word quickly back to the directorate in France telling them that the Pope was on his deathbed and he got word back as fast as they would, could get it back. When the Pope dies, don't allow another Pope to be elected. That was the direct direction that he got. In other words, this is it. But to the absolute consternation of the directorate back in France and uh, Joseph Bonaparte, this Pope wasn't on his deathbed. He got off that bed and he recovered. And that's when, in desperation, they told Berdia to ask him to abdicate demand his abdication if he refused to take him prisoner and that's of course what happened he refused to abdicate but think of it brethren and sisters if Pius VI had died in 18 I'm sorry 1797 the 1260 year prophecy would have been out by one year and God is a wonderful mathematician or we could have argued, well, it was approximately just one year out. That's all right. You know, really, it was only round figures. We could say that, but God did, didn't work that way. It wasn't until the next year that the papacy was declared to be finished and there was no pope on the papal throne. 1260 years exactly after the time in which Pope Virgilius wore the title of Pontifex Maximus, giving him political as well as religious power, beginning the treacherous reign 
of the papacy over those 1260 long and very torturous and persecutive years of prophecy. But at the end of verse 3 it says, The deadly wound was healed and all the world wondered after the beast. All was amazed would be just as good a translation. I want to tell you what the papacy has done in the last 20 or 30 years. It has been amazing, especially under the reign of John Paul II. Although we can go back probably to the reign of John the 23rd. And today it is assuming an authority that is dominant. But verse 4 talks about the fact that they worship the dragon. They didn't know that they were worshipping Satan, but they worshipping Satan. And it says, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? That's a, they're fighting words, aren't they? It reminds me of school bullies going around. We had one in our school when I was a boy, and I wasn't the one. I was too much of a coward to be the bully of the school. And, you know, almost flexing the muscles. Who's willing to take me on, you know? That's the kind of challenge it sounds like. Who is able to make war with him? With whom? The Vatican? One-sixth of a square mile? One hundred and eight point seven acres? You know, I did a little calculation. I don't know why I did it. But I multiplied it by seven and it came almost exactly to the size of Heartland Institute. 761 acres. It actually came to 700 and 60.9 acres if you multiply by 7. But we don't have all the diplomats of the world coming beating a path to our door. Seven times the area of the papacy. That's what I'm saying. How could that have the audacity to say who can make war with him? But who can make war with the papacy? Who dare make war with the papacy? Could you imagine what would happen if any nation tried to attack that little speck on the map of the world? I well remember 1943, a crusade in my city of Newcastle in Australia. And one night the big banner across the tent was, Why No Bombs? On Rome. Some of you older people here will remember that not one bomb was dropped on Rome. They bombed Naples to death. They bombed Milan, Turin, and all the other major cities of um, industry. But Rome, not one bomb. I don't have to tell you why. They were afraid that some misguided bombardier would somehow miss the target and it would hit the papacy. That was the reason. You know, they were very inexperienced crews going from, from the desert of North Africa over to bomb Rome, or rather Italy. Very inexperienced crews. I remember when 
They, they told the saga of the Lady Be Good, which was a Liberator bomber that was sent to bomb Naples and never returned and wasn't found till many, many years later, deep into the desert, way beyond its base, and all that young crew. And they point out that half the crew was on its first mission and the other half was on their second mission. So you can understand they weren't very experienced. And in wartime, you've only got a short time to train your personnel, and so not all of them are very experienced. So they couldn't risk sending those liberators further north up to Rome to bomb Rome because what would happen to the morale and the support of the Allied nations if one bomb dare got astray and somehow fell on the Vatican? Who is able to make war with him? must be, that Swiss army must be a great army. But you know, just about any tiny nation of the world could take an army up there and in a matter of an hour or so have subdued all opposition. But no one dare. The Bible has some remarkable statements, and this is one of them. Well, you notice that there were the 1260-day prophecy or 42 months as it is here in verse 5 we find it a blasphemous power we find it a persecutive power and then in verse 8 it comes to the dramatic statement that says and all that dwell upon the earth shall what worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world tragic it would be if there was a period and nothing more to be said after all that dwell upon the earth because we may as well not be here but we're here today because we want to be amongst those who will not worship the beast and will not uh, worship the image to the beast that's why we're here today now what i'm doing here is sound a very quick overview because i'm coming to the the, the second beast the two superpowers at the end of time one a super-religious political power, the other a super-military political power. And the two together are absolutely, from worldly perspectives, invincible. It's a perfect combination from worldly perspectives. And if it weren't for the final intervention of God, we don't know how long such an alliance would last and control and ruthlessly put down all opposition in the world. Then we come to the 11th verse. And I beheld another beast. This is the second superpower. Coming up out of the earth, the contrast is clear immediately, isn't it? Instead of coming up out of the sea, it's coming up out of the earth. And the Bible doesn't say these things without it having significance. What's the significance, dear brethren and sisters? What is it? Coming out of the earth. It has to be in contrast to the sea, which is populations and multitudes and peoples and so on. And, of course, that's exactly what it is. Therefore, as the pioneers looked at this text, they had no alternative but to look to the new world for the answer. And uh, 
it wasn't hard to decide which of the nations in the New World is represented. There are a number of clues. Firstly, it not only came up out of the earth, but it says it has horns like that of a what? A lamb. Now, this is strange because all the other beasts we talk about in uh, prophecy, almost all of them are mature animals. The lion, the bear, the leopard, the ram, the he-goat, and so on. They're all mature animals, but here is a, an immature animal or a young animal. That must have some significance. A young nation. A yet immature nation. And of course we have the end of the 1260-day prophecy, so we need to look for a nation rising up. Now, don't let anyone tell you it's anyone but the United States of America. Just go back to Great Controversy 442, 442 and other passages, and Sister White is so plain. If you believe in the spirit of prophecy, you have to believe this is the United States. I was down ministering in North Carolina several years ago, and a young man approached me after me and said, please come with me to my parents' home. They believe all sorts of things that Larry Wilson has been saying, and uh, I want you to speak with them. Well, it wasn't my plan to divert uh, in that direction, but I did, and I tell you, it was something going up those mountains of North Carolina. I didn't realize what we were going up into. I was glad it was not winter time because it would be a very treacherous climb up those mountains in winter time. But when I got to the top, I met the parents, and they started telling me this second beast was Satan. I said, Satan? The very text itself makes it plain it could not possibly be Satan. Let's look at it. And he spake as a dragon. Or it could just as easily read, he spake like a dragon. Well, if you speak like something, you're not it. Does that make sense? I used to have, and Russell too, we used to have occasionally people say, you speak just like your dad. But that made it clear we weren't our dad. How can Adventists be so blind? How can they get these answers when the Bible is so plain, so unequivocal, so easy to understand, dear brethren and sisters? How can it happen? Now remember, the dragon is Satan. Obviously, there's no other nation in the New World that would have anything like the power of the United States. There are other nations that rose somewhere in the same capacity. Those of you that know the founding of Australia, it was 1788 in the, the right time frame, but no one would be foolish enough to say that Australia was the second beast. It just doesn't have the power. It doesn't have the influence. But this nation has. But I want you to think, brethren and sisters, just how remarkable was that they were willing to settle on the United States. Now, as we go down, we're going to find that this power is going to coerce the whole world. It's going to be the enforcer of the papacy. Now, 
That was impossible in the middle of last century. Absolutely impossible. The Americans can't remember it, so I don't expect the British to remember it. Except a few that are real students of history. But something happened in 1820 that absolutely made it impossible for America to become the enforcer of the world. It was an act passed by Congress and signed by the President that if it was still holding fast today, America could never be the enforcer of the world. Does anyone remember what that was? Anyone at all? Maybe I'll help you by saying the president at the time was President Monroe. Does that help? 1826. The Monroe Doctrine. What was the Monroe Doctrine? Well, without taking the time to have question and answer period, putting it in very simplified words, the Americans were fed up with the Europeans coming and fighting their wars in the Americas. The British, the French, the Dutch, the Spanish and so on, all had sent galleons all over America. And uh, one of the things that really was the end of their, their patience was the War of 1812 when Britain made another foray into the North American area. And Monroe had been preaching apparently before his election that we had to do something about these European nations treating the Americas as their battleground. If they want to fight, let them fight over in Europe. That was the attitude of the Americans of that day. I suppose you can hardly blame them. And so the Monroe Doctrine in essence said, you Europeans, you stick over in Europe and, and we won't interfere with you. And you look after Europe, we're going to look after America and don't you dare come and look after us. And we're not going to interfere with you and you're not going to interfere with us. If America had held to that policy up until this day, she could never have been the enforcer of the world. And remember, that was well and uh, strong at that time in Europe. I mean, in America. The Americans weren't going to fuss with European affairs. Just as little as they had to for commerce and trade, but not in the political domain. Not even as much as they had shown in the War of Independence, uh, rather, the French Revolution. And you look at it. Shortly after that was the Revolution of 1830 here in Europe. America kept so far away from the situation. Then came the revolution of 1848 under Louis Philippe. Oh, the Americans kept out of that too. Then came the Crimean War. The Americans kept way out of it. The Monroe Doctrine was alive and well and practicing and being strictly held to. Then came the Franco-Prussian War. Still no thought of American involvement whatsoever. And then we come to the First World War. 
You remember when that war started, America had nothing to do with that one either. Now there were times during the war when Lloyd George was very upset with Woodrow Wilson and so Woodrow Wilson and uh, he, they started to surreptitiously in passenger ships coming over here to put some arms in the ships, in the hold of the ship. The poor passengers knew nothing about it. They didn't know what risks they were taking travelling in a boat that was loaded with arms for Britain. Of course, that wasn't what uh, Lloyd George wanted. He wanted the might of American manpower. But it wasn't happening. Eventually, the German intelligence caught up with what the Americans were doing, and they warned the American government if they continued to send arms to Britain in the hold of passenger ship, they would be forced to attack those ships. You can hardly blame the Germans. I mean, if you're on their side of the fence, that's probably what you would say too. And eventually it happened in 1917. And a U-boat struck the Lusitania, a passenger ship only a short way offshore. But it sank like a log. I mean, like lead. Why? Because it's full of armaments. And when they attacked it, you can imagine what happened in the hole of that ship. Just ripped it apart. And, of course, that was the excuse. And America declared war. And in one more year, the war that was absolutely stalemated in 1917 was over one year later. But that was the first break almost a hundred years later in the Monroe Doctrine. But still, America was going to go back to the Monroe Doctrine. After all, this was the war to end all wars. There was to be no other wars now. You remember at least reading about those statements. And so the Americans went back to their isolationism again. Oh, yes, America in many ways dominated the Treaty of Versailles, or they played a very important part, Woodrow Wilson, in the Treaty of Versailles at the end of the war. Catastrophic results came from that. And they were very strong in setting up the League of Nations, but America never joined the League of Nations because of the Monroe Doctrine. But then came the Second World War. And you remember when Hitler attacked Poland, the Prime Minister here in the House of Commons said that the Germans had attacked, therefore Great Britain is at war. A simple, plain declaration of war there in July of 1939. By the way, ten hours later in the Australian Parliament, Robert Gordon Menzies stood up and said, Great Britain is at war, therefore Australia is at war. I was five, a bit over five and a half then. 
I couldn't understand the enormity of it. But for the next six years, all I heard about, like any of my generation, was war, war, war. But America kept out. The Monroe Doctrine was still trying to hang on. But then, Winston Churchill was putting pressure upon pressure on Roosevelt. Britain needs your help. But Roosevelt was too afraid to cold turkey launch America into the war. He knew the populace was not ready for it. The population wanted to keep out of the Second World War of America. So there had to be a reason. And eventually, Roosevelt got the reason. As you know, the Americans had already broken the code of the Japanese. Therefore, when they got the coded message that was dealing with the attack on Pearl Harbor, they knew perfectly well that the Japanese Air Force was about to attack Pearl Harbor. The Americans could have stopped that so easily. They could have saved many hundreds into thousands of lives. I often think of those poor young men on those ships there in Pearl Harbor who lost their lives because nothing was done by the Americans in spite of the fact they knew the Japanese were coming. They were ready to take the consequences. They needed an excuse to rivet the American population behind them. And, of course, Pearl Harbor was the perfect answer. They couldn't stand by while so many of their young men had been killed and much of their Navy had been seriously disabled. And they declared war. And that threw them into the, the European sphere as well. But, you know, it wasn't as easy a task as it was in the First World War. One year and America had so helped sew up the First World War, but it didn't happen that way in the Second World War. The Axis powers were very strong. But eventually, with American help, the war in Europe was won by the Allies and then the war in the Pacific. Since that moment, the Monroe Doctrine has been dead. The average American would hardly ever have thought for the Monroe Doctrine today. Just about every issue that there's been across the world, America gets into. Even little things. Fancy getting involved in Grenada, for example. A little postage stamp island. Very a beautiful one, by the way. But... You imagine America going down there on this poor little island of Grenada. And they got into Panama, of course into Haiti, Cuba, Somalia, Bo you can go on. 
And where they didn't send their troops, they sent advisors. You know what that means. And a lot, oh, usually a lot of ammunition and hardware with it. And where they didn't send their advisors, they sent their CIA agents. America has become the policeman of the world. Now that was necessary. If anyone tells you that the great controversy isn't an inspired book, it's amazing how an impossibility, as it seemed at that time, it wasn't some pro prognosticator seeing events at that time and saying, well, now I'm prophesying about them. No, no. Those events were impossible while the Monroe Doctrine was intact. It had to be destroyed. Oh, I don't mean it's gone off the, the records of America. I don't think there's been any annulment of the Monroe Doctrine. It just doesn't act in reality today. I wonder what would happen if someone raised the Monroe Doctrine in Congress. Probably many of the congressmen would hardly know what you were talking about. They're so involved in being the policeman of the world today. Brethren and sisters, these events are taking place. Prophecy is always going to be fulfilled. I remember the, the way in which our evangelists about the early 1950s in Australia, and probably it was happening here in Britain and probably in America and other parts of Adventism, but they were preaching why communism cannot rule the world. Did you ever have any evangelistic meetings like that? We had them in Australia. I remember seeing the great signs. You know, those great tent meetings were something in those days. They're almost a thing of the past, but it's good to be in a tent here this weekend, isn't it? It gives a kind of authenticity to our worships with the Lord. So here it was, the great sign, why communism cannot rule the world. Now when China capitulated to the blood red banner of communism, Almost half the population of the world was under <coughs> communism of some variety. Whether it was the terrible hardcore Albanian form or the softer form of Yugoslavia. You add the populations together. And it was attacking over in Africa in many of the African nations, in Tanzania, in, in Angola, and so on. And it was in Central and South America in many parts. And it was in the Asians, the, the insurgencies in Malaysia, and in the Philippines, and other nations. And of course, North Korea capitulated. And, and there was a lot of communist activity in India, and many nations of the world. Yes, I mentioned Africa, yes. And there were those who were morbidly predicting that communism would eventually take over the world. So that was a wonderful topic at that time. It was a very relevant topic. Why communists? And you know, they preached a very simple message. What, what do you think the prophecy was that they used to buttress that communism couldn't rule the world? What prophecy would you use? 
Daniel 2, of course. They shall not cleave one. And that's what happened. We preached it. But I don't know whether you noticed it or didn't notice it. That's really what it was. But you know later, we stopped preaching it. Communism was so entrenched, so powerful, so immovable it would appear, that we lost our nerve as evangelists and Seventh-day Adventists. I'll never forget, it was about 1980. And I started to realize that no one was preaching the overthrow of communism because it was obvious that the last two players at the end of this world were the papacy in the United States, not the Soviet Union. So therefore, we had to conclude that something was going to happen to the Soviet Union. For decades... The Cold War between the Soviet and America had taken place and others played a minor or lesser role. The other nations, whether they're in the Warsaw Pact or whether they're in the NATO, NATO depending which one they're in, they were kind of supporting cast to the two major stars of the political sphere of this world. But now we didn't have the courage. Soviet was so strong and dangerous. China was emerging with increasing power. But the Bible doesn't make mistakes. It can't make a mistake because it's a word of God and God cannot lie. And certainly God admits of no mistakes. I'll never forget the first time I preached on this topic. I decided I'd go around and give series on this topic. Someone had to be preaching the overthrow of communism. I had no idea we were less than a decade away from the crumbling of the Soviet, well, all the Eastern European communism. Had no idea. But I knew that we had to preach it. That's one of the great signs, by the way, that we're coming to the end of this world. The very fact that the other so-called superpower is no longer a superpower. I preached it in the Palmdale Church in central southern California, more or less on the boundary of central and southern California. And I remember it evoked a lot of interest by the people there that Friday night. Because I'd never heard someone preach on it. It's been so long since we had, probably close to 25 to 30 years. Brethren and sisters, we cannot, we must not be timid about preaching the truth in the Word of God. If God has said it, it's going to happen that way. We don't have to worry about it. I wonder how many millions of people would have heard the message around the world that communism would collapse one day, that the Soviet Union could no longer sustain itself as a superpower at the end of time. And though they hadn't become part of the Advent faith, they would remember it if we'd have had the courage to preach the word and not worry about the circumstances. Clearly, our pioneers preached what the word said, and they didn't 
deviated all from that word. Oh, brethren and sisters, that is the serious mistakes that we've made. I remember when I read in the papers uh, towards the end of the 1980s that Saddam Hussein was rebuilding Babylon. Remember it? That's when I started to go around and say, he'll never complete that task. Got to defy the word of God. I didn't know the Kuwaiti war was coming on down the line and all the other sanctions that have come upon them ever since. You see, the word of God is sure. We don't have to be timid in case we make a mistake in preaching the word of God. We won't make any mistakes if we preach God's word. Have the courage to preach it. Preach it when it doesn't seem possible. When people might even laugh at us. Preach it. Because the day will come when they'll realize that what we have preached is in truth the word of God. And it's come to pass. Don't you think people later on would have had confidence in us as Seventh-day Adventists? These people really knew what the Bible said. They put their necks out when it didn't seem possible. But because they believed in the Word of God and the Bible was their only basis of faith and practice and because they believed that every word in the Scripture proceedeth out of the mouth of God and that God cannot fail, His prophecies are true and sure and faithful, then, dear brethren and sisters, they might have taken notice of us. But cowardly, timidly, almost ashamedly, apparently we decide it wasn't what wasn't comfortable to preach this message. And we've paid a consequence, I believe, probably in many souls, not being now ready for the kingdom of heaven as a result of not proclaiming what God had given to us. Well, you go down and you find this power. It's going to be a dreadful power. Now, another thing's got to happen. Think of it. Those two little horns we mentioned last night, they represented Protestantism and republicanism they represented state and church or church and state they represented religious and civil freedom all basically the same situation by the way when you put them together and think about it and said that had these two horns but then it spake as a dragon now, all these things, you don't speak like a dragon if you're giving civil and religious liberty, if you've got separation of church and state and so on. It's just the opposite. You're giving freedom. America was a land of freedom. Our pioneers knew what the Bill of Rights was all about. They knew what the American Constitution stood for. They understood those principles, and yet they were to say that every freedom that we once cherished would be taken away. You read it again in the great controversy, that book that people are trying to denigrate today. Well, I want to tell you, if they read it, they would see it all fulfilling before their eyes. I tell you, if there's a book to prove the veracity of the prophetic utterances of Sister White, that's it. It's happening. The freedoms are being taken away. Now, so the whole policy had to change, but how could it change? I remember when I first went to America 24 or so years ago. It'll be 25 years in September. Every now and again, I heard people saying the Congress 
One day he's going to take away, they're going to change, or American people are going to change the First Amendment that was on their mind. They didn't say much about the Fifth Amendment, the civil liberty one, and yet this is two representations. Now tonight I'm going to be talking about how the religious and civil liberties have been taken away, and I'm going to go a step further and read you what now is taking place in the United States as a result of what has happened. By the way, some of these will be Seventh-day Adventists, people I know personally that have come under the wrath of the changing climate in the legal and uh, judiciary system of America. But you look at it. This power had to break away from all its freedoms and become exactly the opposite nation. Thursday, last week, the House of Representatives voted 375 to 41 the Religious Freedom Bill. I don't know whether you know much about that Religious Freedom Bill. <coughs> Sounds like a good bill, doesn't it? By the way, the Seventh-day Adventist leaders have endorsed it publicly. They've endorsed it. It's in the review. So I presume it's an accurate report. Well, wouldn't you endorse a religious freedom bill? You'd want to look at it pretty closely before you did it, wouldn't you? Don't judge a book by its cover, and don't judge a bill by its title. Oh, it sounds good when you just read broad scopes of it, trying to keep religious freedom around the world and so on. Obviously, that's a policing act again not just talking about the United States of America. It's now to go to the Senate. Now President Clinton has threatened to veto that bill. He does do some good things. But if the Senate votes the way the House votes, he may as well not even bother to try and veto it because it'll be easy to gain the two-thirds majority to override the veto. <coughs> One of Clinton's representatives, <coughs> spokesman, was asked why the president was leaning towards vetoing the bill. And he said, because there are great risks that the, the bill will take away some freedoms from minority religions. They got more, he had more insight than did the leadership of our church. It's just another cover for an anti-vilification law. Do you know what I mean by an anti-vilification law? 
If you're in Australia, you'd know what that meant because that word or that concept has been thrown around a lot in Australia. It means you can't vilify anyone's religion. You can't speak against anyone else's religion. It will become a criminal offence to speak against someone else's religion. Well, maybe just the identification of the papacy as the Antichrist. Do you think the papacy is trying to get in these anti-vilification laws? You better believe it. These things are happening right now. And it looks almost certain that the bill will pass Congress and whether Clinton will veto it or not. You know, he's not likely to veto a bill if he sees that there's no chance of it being sustained and that the veto will be overturned. He's been very careful not to have a lot of overturning of his vetoes. And he plays the numbers more shrewdly than just about any president I have witnessed there in the United States. (coughs) So there is a deeply troublesome probability that this bill will pass. And if we stand up, you know, the great controversy will be a vilifying book in the eyes of many people. I know when Russell and I wrote the book Antichrist is Here, we considered that situation. But you can't stop doing what is right because of human fear. You've got to go ahead. We've got to do what is right. It may come against us in the future. Brethren and sisters, we can't close our mouth But what is happening in times of freedom now might not be easy to do in times of difficulties that are ahead. And this prophecy is being fulfilled as we've seen every detail of it in spite of all the evidence to the contrary when our believers and the prophet put forth the clear understanding of it. You'll notice in verse 12 it says, And he exercised all the power of the first beast before him, and his power was from Satan. And causes the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven in the sight of, the, in the sight of men. And deceiveth them. You know, the United States is going to become a deceiving power. Um, and it's a deceiving power. Well, listen, with all the, the whole... Um, issue of certain branches of government is to deceive. You'd see, CIA's would get nowhere if they were open about what they were doing. A deceiving nation. This land of Christianity and integrity. But no. And then in verse... 15 it says and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast and the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image to the beast should be killed we're going to see a reestablishment of the death penalty it has to come there's only one nation first world nation in the world that has an active death penalty at the moment and that's the United States of America and it's very active 
we live in one of the most active death penalties uh, states, Virginia. Second only to Texas. It and Florida are about neck and neck. But uh, F Florida's got a much bigger population than Virginia. It's not a very comfortable state to be in or Commonwealth to be in in terms of the death penalty, I can tell you. But really, it's not going to be a state death penalty. It's going to be a national or a federal death penalty. But remember this, it's not just going to be in America. They're going to bring it back here. They're going to bring it back in Australia. They're going to bring it back in Canada, South Africa, in, in um, uh, New Zealand and all of Western Europe. They'll have to because this will eventually end up in a universal death decree. So this idea of no death, death um, penalties in this country, it's not going to last much longer. It's going to come back. And it'll be Satan's design. Whatever the reason they give for it to come back, it might be terrible murders or mass murders or, or brutalities or whatever, but whatever they bring it back, it's going to be used against God's people at the end of time. Of course, you have that statement... And that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark of the beast, uh, sorry, had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Well, I hope none of us are able to buy or sell. Red and sisters, we better get out of the country. Listen, my last message tomorrow, I wish that everyone that had been here today could be here for that last message because I'm going to take up the consequences and the possibilities that will result in relationship to biblical prophecy from the 2000 year computer bug and take that up and um, that will be in the last meeting tomorrow morning we at Heartland are taking some very serious steps Britons probably sit fairly comfortably because they say, well, at least we're one of the few countries in Europe that will get towards able to handle this situation. Only Britain, the Netherlands and Scandinavia have any chance of getting anywhere near ready for the year 2000. Germany is in an unbelievably chaotic situation. Germany! The might of Europe. France, Belgium, Italy, Austria, Switzerland. You'd think those countries would have been smart enough to get, get ready. But the report card on those nations is abysmal. And all the last minute efforts now are just not going to do it. We're too close to the time. And there's just not enough computer technicians and analysts that can even begin to handle the situation. Listen, those of you that are camped in the middle of London or any other city, you better start doing something about and asking God to give you the plans to get out of it, or any other big city, or even large town. 
the chances of things going wrong are just too, too high. And I'm not talking about from wide-eyed visionaries. I'm talking about what government agencies are saying, what leaders of government are saying. That was one of the dialogues, by the way, between Clinton and Blair. What to do. And every nation, including Britain, has done far too little to really get ready for 2000. And if things, something miraculous doesn't happen, food supplies, water supplies, electrical supplies, the whole, you imagine the middle of the northern winter with some of these things they could stop or be greatly disrupted banking and all fiscal transactions I'm going to read you tomorrow afternoon or tomorrow late morning about those listen, no buying and selling you better get in a little patch where you can grow a little garden (coughs) Sister White said, those that live in the country will live like kings and queens. But what about those who are in, in apartment buildings? They've hardly got a square inch of land around them to grow anything. Think nothing of the, the disruption to airline services, to train services, because all are computerized today. Just the traffic lights. They just are fearful that in America the traffic light system will just be chaotic. That doesn't sound much until you try to see how cars try to push their ways around when they get into those kind of jams. They'll need to put in so many policemen to try and cover what the lights are not doing. They probably won't have enough. Brethren, sisters... We are coming to the end of time. I want to read you tomorrow statements that Sister White has made about the temporal millennium and Sunday laws. I didn't even know they existed until a few weeks ago and I was down at a funeral in Georgia and uh, one of my pastor friends, retired pastors, Elder Robert Taylor, used to be president of the Tanzanian Union. He said, Colin, you better look at this thing. So I looked at it. If I can understand what Sister White's saying, we're very close to these Sunday laws. Very close. And we'll look at some of the Sunday laws that have been enacted just this year. And why they've been enacted... And why it's changed the whole economy of nations. We can't allow these events to pass us by without saying, Lord, we've got to be ready. You know, we can know it and still be lost. Knowledge doesn't save you. Knowledge is a vehicle for us to recognize that we've got to get with the Lord. Our prayer life, our study life, our witnessing life has to be such that the Lord knows that we're fully on fire for him. We haven't got much more time, and the 
less we do now, the more we'll have to do in times of severest persecution. I'm afraid that that's just about all of it's going to have to be done in days of severest persecution. God is calling for his people today to wake up and recognize that it's no use just saying we're at the end of time or I believe Jesus is coming soon. We've got to live that, brethren and sisters. And we've got to be ready, each one of us, for the return of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our church has to be awakened, let alone the world. No wonder all the, the virgins slept, wise and foolish. About time we tried to wake up. But that's tomorrow. Tonight is what's happened to the freedoms in America. And what's happening to the freedoms in America is impinging upon the rest of the world. I pray that each one of us will make our calling and election sure. If I just come here and give a little information, that's one thing. It's another thing, dear brethren and sisters, for you to know that the Lord is calling you to the fullest commitment of your life to Him. I just cannot be silent when I know how close we are to the end of time. We are to be like the Thessalonians, not in darkness that that day should overtake us as a thief. Wake up. Arise. Open our eyes. Listen with our ears. And open our hearts to the full indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the power of Jesus Christ. May God bless us. Keep us faithful to that great end. Let us kneel together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thy word is certainly a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Dear Father in heaven, we have not followed cunningly devised fables, but the word of God has made known to us when holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto we do well that we take heed as unto a lamp that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in our hearts. O oh Lord, May each one of us know the solemn and momentous moments in which we live. This is a grand and awful time in which to live, but it's also a time to arise out of our sleep, for the day cometh when no man can work. May we each one work for Jesus, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost because we have the power of thy truth in our mind and also in our hearts, that we might be the faithful witnesses to the glory of God, to the invitation to his kingdom, to the soon coming of our Savior, so that myriads will be joining with us to go home to live with him. And may not one of us miss the glorious opportunity of living with Jesus throughout eternity, 
and may we have many others to whom we have witnessed that will be with us for eternity, we pray in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.